Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is Nate Rigier. Now, Nate is the is a PhD, is a co-founder and owner and CEO of a company called Next Element. A former practicing psychologist, he has a doctorate in clinical psychology. He's an expert in social emotional intelligence, leadership, positive conflict, mind, body, spirit, health, neuropsychology, group dynamics, interpersonal and leadership communication, uh, and executive assessment and coaching. So he has a ton of experience when it comes to understanding uh, team dynamics, when it comes to understanding the individual. Uh, and he's also an international advisor. He's a certified LOD uh, trainer, PCM uh, certifying master trainer and co-developer of Next Elements leading out of drama training and coaching system that they use within uh, specific uh, environments, uh, specifically around corporate environments. So this is a really interesting conversation. So the whole conversation is actually about conflict, which I think that we can all resonate with. You know, everybody has conflict in some part of their life, whether they are experiencing conflict in their relationship, whether they're experiencing conflict in their work environment with their boss, with their employees, with their colleagues on their team, whether you're in school and you have conflict, whether you have conflict in your family, we all experience conflict in in some way in some part of our life. And so Nate has spent quite a few years researching conflict and just you know recently wrote this book called Conflict Without Casualties, a field guide for leading with compassionate accountability. And on this podcast episode, on this interview, uh, him and I are going to take a really deep dive into understanding what creates conflict, uh, regardless of the environment, whether it's in your work environment or home environment, or even in your internal system. Uh, so we're going to talk about what creates conflict. Then we're going to talk about what can help to resolve conflict, some of the tools, uh, why compassion is so necessary, so needed, and and how to create what he calls compassionate accountability so that you create a culture and an environment, whether, again, whether it's in your relationship or your family or uh, or your work life, where everyone is actually working towards holding each other compassionately accountable to showing up and actually and actually addressing conflict, actually moving not into conflict, but through conflict. Because a lot of the times, conflict stays in the environment because it's not being addressed. And Nate actually brings forward some interesting data around uh, how they have found that roughly 75% of people, of leaders, uh, will, will actively uh, either avoid conflict or when conflict arises, they will uh, they will concede to other people's desires, even when they know what what they should do or need to do in that moment. Uh, they'll concede to other people's desires specifically so that they can reduce conflict. So this is a really interesting topic. Um, we take a pretty deep dive into conflict. So. No matter where you have conflict in your life, this is going to be a great episode for you. Don't forget, uh, if, if you're wanting to join a great community, head on over to Facebook, join the Man Talks community. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram. Uh, we are now live on Spotify, so you can download our, our podcast there as well. 
Uh, and a really great, exciting announcement. I'm going to be launching the Alliance 2.0. The Alliance is a group for men. Uh, we've Our last group is, is slowly coming to a close. It's four months long. And we had guys from all over the world partake, guys from Belgium and Australia and uh, you know, New York and Vancouver and Toronto and the UK, just just everywhere, every part of the world uh, joined joined these this group. Uh, and we're going to be launching another one. It's four months long. We go through purpose. We go through mindset. Uh, we we you know we go through intimate relationships. I'm going to be teaching about masculine feminine dynamics, and we're going to be taking a deep dive into really understanding yourself. So if you're a guy that's out there listening to this, you're wanting to join a really great group of men from around the world who are holding each other accountable to their greatest selves, to their greatest greatest versions, uh, and you're wanting to be a part of that, definitely go to mantalks.com and check out the Alliance. It is in the menu bar. And uh, I hope to see you in there. So if you apply, you'll have a call with me to see if it's a good fit for you. And uh, other than that, uh, I hope to see you as part of the Alliance. So that's it for that. And without further delay or further ado, I would, I'm honored, I'm honored to welcome Nate Riggier. Glad to be here. Thank you, Connor. Well, look, this is, you know, we're going to dive into some really uh, in- incredible stuff here and, and something that I think that all men and, and really all women as well could uh, learn more about when it comes to conflict, when it comes to addressing some of these conversations, which which can be incredibly challenging for us. But before we dive into any of that, I'm so curious to hear a little bit more about you and your story. So, so maybe tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that's made you who you are today. Yeah, that's a good question. There's there's been a lot, but one that one that really comes to mind for me, I was. I was about nine years old living in rural Zaire, Africa. My parents were missionaries with the Mennonite church. And for, for those of you that don't know about Mennonites, one of, uh, one of their defining characteristics is a focus on peace and nonviolence. So I was kind of brought up around this idea of, you know, you, you don't hurt people, you turn the other cheek, you're always trying to find a peaceful way. Well, one night, we, we spent a lot of time outside in Zaire because it's, tro- it's tropical country, would often cook around a fire and often end up sitting around a fire visiting late into the night. I'd fall asleep on you know, my mom's lap and she'd carry me in and put me to bed. This one night, it was about three in the morning, and I remember waking up, being woken up by bright light outside my window of my bedroom. And I was startled and I looked outside and I saw a huge inferno where the fire had been that we had been around that evening and all i could see was two two silhouettes moving around the fire and one of them was a man throwing all of our wicker furniture into the fire piece by piece as it just flamed and the other person i could make out was my dad and i knew immediately what was going on this was the town schizophrenic and the village schizophrenic. He was back in those days, you know, he was called possessed or demon possessed. But I know now because of my training, I think he had schizophrenia. He was probably having hallucinations. But I watched while my father talked this man down from the, this, this rage that he was in, talked to him, talked to him until the two of them were sitting in the only remaining two wicker chairs having a conversation. And I remember that day going from being really afraid to having this incredible respect for my father and his ability to take a tough situation and move through it into dialogue with somebody. And I think that kind of planted seeds for me about how there's got to be a different way, a better way to deal with conflict. Very nice. Very nice. I mean, it's it's incredible that that upbringing in your background 
has sort of shaped and molded you on the journey to where you are today. Were there were there moments along the line like that that sort of made you curious about the human experience? Because it seems like you've done a lot of work on really understanding the inner workings of the human psyche in, in a lot of ways. And so was was your environment growing up, uh, you know, sort of part of that curiosity? Like what, what other components really sort of led to this, this spark to understand how people embrace or deal with or run from conflict? I've always been a student of the human condition. I just love watching people and trying to figure out why we do what we do. In high school, I was actually around a lot of violence. I went to high school in Botswana during the period of the 80s when South Africa was still under apartheid rule and Nelson Mandela was in prison still. And so there was a lot of violence going on with political refugees and people wanting to strive and and work towards greater respect and treatment of human beings, but a lot of violence trying to keep people down. And so from car bombings, you know, being around car bombs that had gone off on my way to school to to having political refugees assassinated two or three doors down from me in high school, I think that was a time when I thought that, again, there's just got to be a better way. There's all this energy that people have because they don't agree. And how do how could we use that energy in a different way? So when I ended up studying going into psychology, then I started to understand better and have the tools to make sense out of what was going on. Mm. From maybe a morality standpoint or or even from a value standpoint, what do you see as sort of being some of the the traditional causes of conflict? Like what really goes into to the making of a good conflict? <laughs> Yeah, I love that question. <laughs> I think there's a couple there's a couple features of the human being that that set us up for this. Uh, the first feature is that we're diverse. People are different. Backgrounds, value systems, personality, what what have you. People are different and so they're naturally going to come up against differences and disagreements with how they approach things and how they all try to go after getting what they want. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think another thing, though, about humans is that we have this incredible deep down urge to feel justified. Humans love to feel justified. I, I don't know about you, but on any given day, I'm surprised how much energy I spent being able to say, see, I was right. <laughs> you know, whether, it's so true. Whether, even, even if, it, it's, even so if it's just inside of our heads, right? Like, ah, I was right. <laughs> Oh, man, you know, somebody says, you know, I didn't get that email you sent. And so now I feel like I have to go check my sent box to make sure I actually sent it so that I can be right. And they can be the one whose problem it right. is. And, you know, incredible amount of energy. So I think if you take this idea of we're different, and so we're naturally going to have that kind of that conflict between what we want and how we're seeing things, and mix that with the human urge to feel justified, and it can become quite a quite a um, toxic combination of how we spend our energy. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's interesting, right? Because I think based on the backgrounds, based on the environments, on the, you know, the theologies, the cultures that people grow up in, it can begin to provide people with the sort of the quote-unquote ammunition that makes for the recipe for for a lot of conflict, right? When when my beliefs are different from your beliefs about how we should be raising children or how we should be distributing money or you know how we should be uh, leading a company or, or an organization, we really you know create these circumstances for conflict to be present. So, do you do you see different nationalities, different cultures, different ethnicities approaching conflict differently, or or do you feel like 
at a foundational uh, sort of human level, we all deal with conflict in a relatively similar way. Yeah. Um, yeah, we do see cultural differences. And I think beneath the surface, the two things that are universal is that we're different and that we want to be justified. However, there are cultural overlays and norms for how we handle that energy. So, you know, in, in for example, some Eastern cultures tend to be a lot more accommodating and, and we just, we're just kind to each other. So we don't, we kind of just keep it inside. Whereas maybe some European cultures that are a lot more kind of regulatory and more um, stringent around structure, they may deal with this conflict by trying to over-control things. And we just manage it all with systems and structures where, you know, you go to some African cultures, for example, and probably even some South American cultures, a lot more um, hierarchy and authority is used to control that and to manage that. But no matter where you go, the energy is there. It's just, a, it's just about how different cultures try to handle it. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting because in, in your book, you talk about misusing the energy of, of conflict and, and, uh, you know, just for the, just for the listener's knowledge that the book that we're talking about is called conflict without casualties, a field guide for leading with compassionate accountability. And I definitely want to, you know, jump into compassionate accountability here in a minute, but, but first, um, I'm curious because this is kind of a, an interesting concept. What, how, how does one actually go about misusing the energy of conflict? How does that show up for us? The first thing that happens is there there occurs a gap between what we want and what we're experiencing. And there's nothing wrong with that gap. It could be as simple as or you know it could be like what you said, we have two different philosophies of how to raise kids or as simple as I want to be at work at eight o'clock and I'm sitting in line at Starbucks and there's 20 people in front of me and two of the machines are broken. So it's just a gap and it all starts there. Whether we're aware of it or not, that gap creates energy and there's energy there. And how we spend that energy is where things can really go right or go wrong. And where it goes wrong is if we want to misuse that energy to feel justified. And human beings do it in three ways. Uh, we didn't discover this. A gentleman by the name of Stephen Cartman discovered what he called the drama triangle. And it out, it, it shows three different behavioral roles we play to try to feel justified. And in the book, I go through those. They're the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. And each one has their own attitudes and their own behaviors to try to be able to say, see, I was right. You know, the victim wants to take the one down position and say, see, I always get, I'm always on the bottom of the pile. I'm always the one that gets in trouble. Um, the persecutor always, you know, takes the position of, hey, I'm fine. All, all of you are the ones with the problem. Um, by the way, you're going to hear some train whistles, and that's just where I am and where I work. So I hope you enjoy the background noise. Yeah, it's all good. It's just it's in the it's in the background, and yeah. it adds to the ambience. I like it. It does. Yeah. And then there's the third role, which is the role of the rescuer, and the rescuer kind of appoints themselves the fixer of everyone else's problems, and so they get to feel justified about trying to show everybody else how to deal with that gap and fix it for everyone else. And so they're famous for providing what I call non-consensual helping. <laughs> I like that. I like that non-consensual yeah. helping. I think we all know those people who who literally hear a problem and they're like, you know what you should do? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, you know, you know no. what you should do? It's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, here we go. Did, please tell me what I should do, please. <laughs> yeah. Here, let me show you the way. And so these three roles are just – we all can play them and we all switch switch sometimes. But when those three roles are going at it, 
they play off of each other and they feed off of each other. And the only end goal is to feel justified. So when people are spending that gap energy of conflict in drama, nothing nothing productive is happening because there's just that one goal of being justified. Mm. So how, how do we start to shift then? Because if, if it, it sounds like being justified in conflict might not be the aim that we want if we want to have a sort of uh, win-win situation or a positive outcome where where everybody is actually served and supported. So if if that's not the aim or the outcome that we should be seeking, which you know is sort of like the automatic programming that seems to be happening underneath is seeking justification, then what's what's the alternative? What can we start to look for alternatively? Well, the best the best coaching question I was ever asked by a mentor of mine is he said, "Nate, do you want to be justified or do you want to be effective?" Mm. Because you can't have it both ways. And I think that is really the crux, is we make a choice to be effective instead of be justified. And at that moment, it requires us to completely reframe our relationship with conflict. And there's all these myths about conflict. And it's like conflict gets such a bad rap. If you go on Google and you search the word conflict, it kind of auto-populates a bunch of phrases and things. And the top words that come up next to conflict are reduction, mediation, management. And you look at those words and it's like, you know, when was conflict something that was supposed to be gotten rid of? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we have to really reframe all these these negative relationships we have with conflict because of our past or or because of whatever – and reframe it. And that's why we really dug deep on the word compassion. Because the word compassion, if you go back to the Latin root, it comes from, it's really two words. It means with and suffer. So calm means alongside and passion means to struggle or suffer. So compassion means to struggle with or to suffer with. And if you juxtapose that to drama, drama means to struggle against. So we shift our paradigm from struggling against each other to feel justified to how about we struggle with each other to be effective. And that paradigm shift then puts us into a whole new world where we can start saying, hmm, we have a lot of energy here. How shall we struggle with each other to create something amazing? Yeah, it's such a great, that's such a great definition and also such a great just way to, to position it to, to create that paradigm shift where we can start to understand the true meaning of, of, of compassion. And it's interesting, I you know, was working with a, a client about a month ago and he was bringing this up that he, you know, his, his his business partner was asking him to be more compassionate. You know, he said, I, I, I need you to be more compassionate. You seem to lack empathy, lack compassion. And, uh, and so he was bringing this up in our session. He was like, I don't know how to do that. You know, I don't know how to be more compassionate. And I said, well, you know, look up, look up the word. And, and we sort of came back to it. And I said, you know, to really be compassionate is to fully understand somebody else's suffering in its, in its truest form to start to, like you said, suffer with in, in a way, not that you take on their suffering, not that you're responsible for their suffering, but in some capacity, you begin to really understand the suffering that they're going through and what it must be like to feel and experience that suffering, whatever the pain may be. So in conflict, is that part of the work that we need to do is to be able to rem- not remove ourselves, but but still see our own suffering in that moment, see our own pain, see our own experience and, and thoughts and be able to, at the same time, take on a piece of somebody else's? Is, is that part of the journey? 
Yeah, the journey, it, it constantly involves being clear about what am I responsible for and who am I responsible to and not crossing those boundaries. And so struggling with someone is not the same as struggling instead of them or struggling against them, that we, we have to own our struggle. And so we, we've developed a, a model called the compassion cycle, which is three critical competencies for practicing compassionate accountability. And it starts with openness. So like you said, open, one part of openness is empathy, is truly understanding what is it like to be in that person's shoes? What is it like for them? But equally to understand our own struggle and to own it. Um, you know, one of the most controversial things we tell people is that you can't make anybody feel. You can do things, but how people feel is is they got to take ownership over that. And so when a person really starts to take ownership over their feelings and at the same time caring about someone else's feelings but not taking it on, that really starts to set the stage for the other two competencies in the compassion cycle mm-hmm. um, where we really where we really are reconciling compassion, which is this kind of care, concern, and empathy. But we also have to reconcile it with accountability because we ultimately we are here to get stuff done. Uh, we're coming together to accomplish goals and create cool stuff. Mm-hmm. So where does where does one start? Like if we were uh, maybe this is like my linear <laughs> analytical brain wanting to like map out the structure and the process for people. But, but you know, let's, let's just say that somebody has a conflict that's, that's come up in their life. Where is the first step in this? Is it to enter into a space of compassion? Is it to, to identify and be aware of our own desire and, and drive for that validation? Like where, where does this begin once we know that conflict has, has, has sort of arisen in our business or our relationship? Yeah, it's a great process. And, and there is a, there is a structure. So we'll be able to do something linear for you because <laughs> um, people, people want, people want a nice framework. They like formulas and structure you because do. it gives them a place to start. So the first thing is, is to become aware of, okay, I'm experiencing this energy. There's a gap between what I want and what I'm experiencing. And there's nothing good or bad about it, but recognize that gap and then identify the emotions associated with that. And that's where we started openness. So we engage conflict starting with openness and getting and disclosing how I'm feeling. You know, I might be feeling anxious. Maybe I'm scared. Maybe I'm angry. Um, and, and so we identify that and then we go to resourcefulness which is where we get really clear about what's going on. You know, what are the details here? What is this gap I'm experiencing? What information do I need to share or gather to be able to understand what's going on and work towards a solution? And then we go to persistence, which is the third competency where we get crystal clear about what's at stake. Why does this matter? Um, What boundaries or principles or promises are at play here? And then we always go back to openness because when we do this kind of hard work of conflict, we, we should bookend it with openness because openness creates a safe place to have conflict without the casualties. Mm-hmm. So a really simple example, let's say, um, let's say the, the, the Starbucks situation. So I'm aware, I'm feeling frantic because I want to be at work at eight o'clock and there's people in front of me. It's not their fault that I can't be to work on time. Um, and it's also, I'm not wrong for wanting to be at eight. I simply have a gap, so I'm feeling frantic. I go to resourcefulness and identify what are the resources that I have to bear here? What do I have control over? What don't I? You know, what are we going to do to problem solve this? And then I go to persistence and identify why is this so important? 
Maybe it's because I have a commitment to my team. Maybe I want my boss to see me in a good light. And when I'm late, you know, that doesn't happen. Uh, and then we go back to openness and we recheck in with ourselves. And that process doesn't repeat over and over and over uh, where we continue to be using that energy to propel us forward uh, towards solutions that respect both the struggle and, and also the accountability. That's great. That's really great. I, I appreciate you laying that out because I think you know it's important for us to understand how we can go about this. And it seems like it seems like the beginning of of really addressing conflict, especially with this model that you're laying out with compassion. I would imagine it's not easy. I think you have a you know a section in it where you talk about it's not for the faint of heart. Compassion is not for the faint of heart because it, it, it takes a it sort of requires a certain amount of self-awareness to be able to understand how you're maybe sabotaging or creating that conflict, that you're an inevitable part of that conflict and that that conflict can't exist without your contribution to it in some way. So is, is that part of the challenge that we have to face when it comes to actually um, rectifying conflict or, or being able to lean into it? We do. We, we have to make a choice. We're, we're constantly making choices on how we're going to spend that energy. And we, I think we can either lean into the conflict or we can lean into the drama. And either way, we're using the energy some way or another. You know, if somebody says, well, I don't do conflict, I just, I'm like, well, that's drama. If you don't do conflict, then what's happening to that energy? You know, are you stuffing it? Are you shutting it down? What are you, are you pretending you're okay when you're not? You know, I don't, I just don't buy it. Um, we're constantly making choices about what to do with that energy. Yeah. So what, what are some of them just to go back? Cause you, you, you mentioned the myths of conflict and it kind of piqued my interest in terms of like, what are some of the common myths that people, that people, you know, sort of subscribe to about conflict? One of them is that conflict is bad and very simple. People are like, conflict is bad. And we ask them why. And they say, well, because people get hurt. And I'm thinking, well, that's not conflict. That's how people handle conflict is where people get hurt. The conflict itself is not, not the problem. So people have a myth because of maybe previous experiences that they've had um, that conflict hurts people. Um, I think that leads to the second myth, which is that conflict should be managed or controlled or mediated. And by doing that, we convince ourselves that conflict is the problem, and we just reinforce a negative relationship with it. And so I think those are, those are the two biggest myths that, that people have that get in the way. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I see those. I mean, I think I see those all the time. I think everybody, you know, sort of sees them play out in, in some way, shape or form. Um, I, I'm curious as to this, this concept of compassionate accountability. Would, would you be able to just unpack that concept a little bit for the listener? So I was at a trade show, an international trade show called um, Association for Talent Development. We had an exhibit there and, and people would come up to our booth and I bet, I bet more than 10 times somebody came up and said, okay, so I've been walking around this exhibit show for three days and you, you won't believe the number of times I've seen the word accountability show up in some leadership program or book or whatever. And I have not seen the word compassion show up anywhere, and I have certainly never seen those two words put together. <laughs> and so they were surprised to see this, but yet they were intrigued because there's two truths that have to coexist, and they seem so counterintuitive. One of the truths is that compassion without accountability gets you nowhere. I've worked with victims of domestic violence, and you can't not your way out of an abusive relationship. 
it just doesn't work. Mm. But the opposite is also true, that accountability without compassion gets you alienated. And we've all worked for people or had parents or teachers that just used a heavy-handed command and control approach to get everything they wanted. And it's toxic. And so compassion and accountability must coexist if we're going to be able to get anything done. And so that's been our challenge with creating our leading out of drama model is that um, you've got to be able to bring those two together and hold them in tension all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so interesting, Nate, because like what you're talking about seems so relevant to the current climate, uh, you know, especially in the States with the political system and the right and the left sort of in, in massive amounts of conflict and and disagreeing with each other and, you know, constantly sort of throwing, <laughs> throwing fire at each other. <laughs> and I'm, I'm curious as to, oh. I'm curious as to like how, how this plays out on a big scale, because, you know, it, 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 it seems like a challenge, at least at first, when I look at, you know, this, this model clearly works and what you're talking about clearly works. And I've seen it a form of this in action when I worked with Apple um, within team dynamics, and um, you know, I can see this playing out at a at a micro level between two people in a relationship, and I can see this playing out between you know one and many when it comes to a team. But how does this start to play out when you have sort of factions? Um, you know, if you have t- if you have a team against a team within your work environment. How how does one start to cultivate that compassion uh, in that setting? Because, you know, when you look at the sort of political environment that's out there, we have, you know, it's like two massive factions that seem to be against one another. It's not just like one person against a group or or one-to-one. It's many against many. So how do, like, what are the challenges in that type of large scale? Well, I can certainly relate. I, I'm a I'm a sucker for cable news because I just watch the drama <laughs> right. and analyze it because we have these factions now where the entire drama triangle is being played out in our political system where the persecutors are on the two ends. The two poles are each persecuting each other. They're, they both have black or white, all or nothing, my way or the highway <laughs> attitudes. They both believe that if you're not with me, you're against me and you should you know, you know should be kicked off the island. And then you've got the victims, which is the silent majority that just doesn't know what to do. And we're just kind of feeling like, you know, what's happening here? You know, we don't like it, but we don't know what to do. And then you have the rescuers, which are all the pundits trying to tell everybody else how to solve the problem. But it's tough. And these factions, like within organizations, they have like their own rules of engagement. And so when new people come on board or new employees, they get taught very quickly how to play the game and how it works. And where I've seen things change is usually when somebody has the courage to choose effectiveness instead of justification, and they put themselves out there, and they get really honest about how they're feeling. They start to care about other people, and they actually take the time to learn about and appreciate the struggles that other people are having and to disclose their own. And instead of playing self-protection and instead of playing let's control information and instead of playing, you know, if we give an inch, then we pretty much going to lose our whole constituency. They really start to look at the much bigger picture Mm. about why are we here? What are we really about here? And what's best for the, you know, for the company or the country instead of what's best for my next re-election campaign or my Twitter feed? (laughs) Yeah. So, so good. I'm, I'm curious as to how, 
how the the breakdown or dilution or manipulation of of truth play into conflict and and, and play into um, you know how we how we address conflict or what role that actually is because it seems like you know Trump in in many ways. And, and, you know, some of those people without getting too political, I don't want to turn this into like a, you know, a political dialogue, yeah, yeah, sure. but it's just an, it's just an example that, that sort of uh, points towards what we're talking about. So, you know, in many ways, there's like an attack on truth where we can have alternative facts, which, which aren't facts at all. They're, they're just opinions that get turned into right. facts. And so when, when people are in some ways manipulating truth or attacking truth, what side of the spectrum do they fall on? Because I can think of times, you know, in my past where conflict would arise. And I remember being a kid and trying to manipulate the truth, manipulate the facts of what actually happened with my parents in order to get out of trouble. And so I'm curious as to where manipulation of truth and facts actually plays into what you're talking about when it comes to compassion and accountability and, and the resolution of conflict. Yeah, that's a, that's a great and a, and a huge question. <laughs> I would say, I would say that facts and truth are gone when justification is the goal. Because if my goal is to feel justified, I am only interested in information that supports my views. And so this has been a long time coming. You know, we're in an information age, but we also can filter and pick and choose where we get what we want. And I'm just as as guilty as anyone else. I prefer the news station that tends to support my views. And so I get angry when I watch the other one. And so I stop watching it because I don't like what it's saying and I don't agree with it. So neither of them are 100 percent true, but they're both two angles on the truth. And so. I think this whole idea that if we just submitted to the truth, everything would be fine is really a myth because human beings are pre-wired to just go find stuff that supports what they believe in. And and that's that's human nature. But I think the more afraid we are and the more polar, polarized we are, the more we do it. And so it's it's a sign of the times that we don't want to submit to facts because that would call our bluff and it would um, – it would cause us to be effective instead of justified. Nobody wants that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's so true. That's so I, true. I mean, because it's interesting yeah. when you look at some of the examples that we're talking about, the the justification uh, that you're talking about, you know, our desire to be justified in conflict is really leveraged in a lot of ways, you know, regardless of the of the type of media that you do watch, whether it's, you know, considered quote unquote right wing media or left wing media or whatever it is, that the the tool of justifying people's opinions seems to be really heavily used nowadays. So how how might one shift? So let let's just say, let's bring this down to like a team level, right? Let's say you work in a team and there is a good amount of conflict and there seems to be a good amount of conflict because there's a lot of blame being pointed on other team members and the team is sort of, you know, factioned uh, between two groups that are starting to create this conflict and, and manipulating facts. How does one, if you're the leader of that team and you see that happening in your work environment, how do you then start to intervene in a way where you can start to resolve that conflict using this, this uh, compassionate accountability? The first thing we do is we start 
we start creating a place and encouraging people to talk about their truth instead of the truth. And one of the things we find is that when people don't come clean about their real motivations and their real end goals and how they're really feeling, then they start to manipulate reality to get what they want, but they've never told anybody what they really want. And so now it looks like they're, you know, twisting the truth or creating fake reality, but all they're doing is trying to get what they want. They've just never disclosed it. So is the truth about the facts or is the truth about something like as a leader, I really want to be seen in a good light by my boss. That's why I'm coming down on you. Not because you did anything wrong, but because I want to be perceived as having everything under control by my boss. That's the truth. So we start getting people to talk about that kind of truth, which is way more powerful than the facts. Yeah. And, and a great example, a great example, I was having a power struggle with my daughter around bedtime and she was about four or five years old. And the more I tried to get her to go to bed, the more wired she got. And I was feeling really desperate. And at that moment, I had a choice to make. Do I want to keep escalating the power and control and make up threats and, and, and create all kinds of fake news to try to get her to do what I want? Or do I actually be honest and tell her I'm feeling desperate? And I don't know what to do and I need your help. And one of them is safe because it's justified. The other one is scary because it's honest. And because I wanted to be seen as competent in front of my wife as a dad. So for me to say, I don't know what to do. Will you help me figure out a way for you to get to sleep? Seems like I'm completely losing it. But until we can tell that kind of truth, I don't think we'll make progress. That's great. That's such a great analogy and something that's, that's, so simple and relatable, you know, so she's trying to get the kids to go to bed, which is, <laughs> I feel like the yeah. eternal struggle of every parent ever from, you know, beginning of time to the end. Yeah. So it's really not about the truth or the facts. It's about my truth. And if I'm willing to be really honest about what I'm after and what my motives are and what my real agenda is, then when we start talking about that, we can either have to face, we have to call our each other's bluffs, or we can actually help each other once we know what you're really after. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's great. And then, you know, in, in terms of, in terms of, you know, this, this, this idea around, um, you know, the, the sort of end result of conflict without casualties, what are the normal casualties of conflict? Like, it's such an interesting play on words, but, and I, yeah. I'm sure that everybody's, yeah. everybody's, you know, maybe idea differs a little bit, but, but if, from your perspective, what are the casualties of conflict? Normally, the most common casualties we see are strained relationships and increased liability. So relationships that are strained because people either have quit or they moved on or they don't talk to each other or they avoid each other at work or they make all this effort to work around each other. Kind of like, you know, you, you broke up with your girlfriend and you got to see her at school the next day. So you like walk the long way to your locker. And it's like that stuff happens at work among adults, too. So that's a that's a huge cost. Um, then liability, because all the things we do to try to try to prove that we're right, a lot of those things actually increase the liability in terms of customer relationships, processes, and procedures. Um, so we increase our chance of making some mistakes and doing some things that are really going to hurt us. There's a bit. There was a great study done in '08 about the global cost of conflict, and it just in America, I think misused conflict costs about 360 billion dollars a year. Wow. In the U.S. Couple couple hours a week that people are spending in this, so it's costly. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's it, um, it seems to be the avoidance the avoidance of it too seems to be one of the biggest contributors to it, or the sort of like unintentional, not joy, but unintentional uh, sort of desire to be in conflict. Like I, I feel like some people's you know nervous systems and brains are sort of hardwired for conflict because it's what they grew up in they don't know anything else other than that maybe they grew up in an environment where where there was abuse or there was constant conflict between their parents and so they just they just know that they just know that space of conflict and so it seems that conflict is is this thing that continues to perpetuate because either we avoid it or it's the thing that we that we know the most and so we constantly are going towards it you know yeah i agree and and probably the two messages that we are brought up with is either when there's conflict somebody's got to win and somebody's got to lose and so i see we see it both ways we see people that have been trained to lose whenever there's conflict and they position themselves and behave in such a way that they will they will end the conflict by losing and then there's people that every time there's conflict they got to win and they're going to dominate and that's just how it's going to end and both of them go at it so we we had an online survey going for a long time we collected thousands of data points on this on a nine question survey and one of them asked people yes or no I choose compromise to avoid conflict. 72% of everybody that answered that survey said yes. Wow. And and it replicates. Every time I was in Oklahoma a couple of weeks ago and I was I I was with 100 women executives in in major energy companies in Oklahoma and 3 quarters of the audience said that. And so I'm thinking, okay, so we have brilliant minds around the table, motivated people with tons of education. And three quarters of you choose compromise to avoid conflict. So what are your companies not getting from you? What are you not getting um, for whatever reason? You know, you may have legitimate reasons why you compromise, but what is it costing you and your companies in terms of untapped opportunity and potential? Yeah, and it's and it's. I can't even yeah, and it's probably massive, you know, like <laughs> if you're if you're constantly compromising what you know to be right as the leader of that team, as the leader of that, you know, uh, relationship or company, I mean, man, oh, man, that's, you know, it's, it's taking things in a different direction each and every single time. And do you feel like do you feel like leaders, let's just use the we'll, we'll stick with the sort of business environment, the professional environment. Do you feel like leaders do compromise because they are wanting to uh, to validate other people in those moments, or are they afraid that they'll be judged for you know for continuing to stick to what they know to be true? Like, what are some of the what are some of the components that actually cause people to compromise in conflict? Number one reason is fear of rejection. That whatever they have to share will not be respected. It won't be taken seriously, or it will be shot down. And in a lot of times, people will say. They, they will cite an example where that happened, and then they made a decision, I'm not going to do this again. But what they don't tell you is that a thousand times since then, they have fantasized about it happening and shut down because of the what they imagined would happen, not what actually happened. And so imagine you having one or two bad experiences, so you stop doing something. But every time something similar comes up, you tell yourself that could happen again, and so you you stop. And so now after time, you have like a thousand memories of something that never happened. Mm -hmm. And you act as if it always happens every time I speak up. And you've now created this incredible fantasy world about how you're not worthwhile. Nobody respects your ideas. 
Um, so people are afraid of rejection. That's the number one reason. And the other one is that it just won't matter. Nobody's going to take me seriously. It won't matter anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, a big one. Um, and so, you know, it's unfortunate because, and there's a difference between healthy compromise where we know exactly what we're giving up. We know what we're getting and, and it's all on the up and up, but that's different than the kind of compromise I'm talking about where I'm, I'm etching away at my soul each time I make a compromise like that. It's something around dignity or my integrity or my boundaries is what I'm actually compromising um, or my best self. Yeah. And it's interesting because by doing that as the leader of the team or the organization, I would imagine that the end result in that in some capacity, you know, the direction that that's taking those people in or the path that it's taking them in is a direction of feeling unfulfilled, feeling unaffected, feeling like they're not having the impact that they actually want to be having in their work all because of that avoidance. It does. It sets that up. And it also sets the stage for a lot of passive aggressive behavior because we have a situation where people may move on, but they didn't really let go. Mm. So, you know, we make a decision and people reluctantly say yes, but they don't speak their mind and they don't speak up about what's important to them. So we move forward as if we all agreed, but we have not let go. And so when we're holding on to that that baggage that you just described, we still act on it. And that's where passive aggressive behavior can become so rampant. Mm. Sorry, we like to joke that if the real meeting starts after the meeting, then we got a problem. <laughs> yeah, no, that's <laughs> I I definitely agree. When when people like leave the meeting and they're not executing and they're just talking about the meeting and all their opinions and judgments of it and they're not on board and there's just conflict, that is a that's an unhealthy place for a team to be. Oh, I voted yes, but I didn't feel safe to say no and you know, right. blah, blah, blah. So now they're just undermining the project from behind the scenes anyways. Right. Man, oh man. Well, it's it's such important it's such important work that that you and your team and your organization is doing because you know, I think this is it's something very real that a lot of people uh within organizations, within teams, I think feel on a day-to-day basis but aren't too sure how to express. They're not too sure how to actually create that change. So, I I think the last really because I know that we we have to wrap up here in just a minute. That one of the last questions that I really had was in and around, you know, creating or, or, or breeding a, a culture of accountability and, and how one actually goes about doing that within the team dynamic in a, in a compassionate way. If you can just maybe elaborate on, on that perspective a little bit, I think that'd be really helpful. Yeah. Thank you. The, the most important thing is to keep our sights on three, three qualities of cultures that can do this. Compassion, accountability cultures have these three things in common. It's safe, it's curious and it's consistent and people know that they're safe to share what's true for them. It's curious. People care about what you have to offer and they care about the best ideas and it's consistent. There are standards we uphold and there are, we walk the talk. And so when we start working with cultures, it, it's got to start with leadership. It's got to start with people who are invested in the outcome and have skin in the game truly to begin taking that courageous risk to every day get up and say, I'm going to live as if we are worthwhile, as if we are capable, and as if we are accountable. And those three have to be part of how I talk to talk to myself, how I talk to my peers, and how we conduct our business every day. And so it starts small. And we start getting that paradigm shifted. We start We start training new behaviors. And then we start looking at how our systems and processes maybe inadvertently are 
perpetuating drama instead of compassionate accountability. And we start rebuilding those and adjusting those as needed. And it takes time. You know, culture didn't develop overnight. So uh, it's not going to change overnight. Yeah, it's very true. Well, you know, like I said, I really appreciate, really appreciate the work that you and your team are doing because, you know, after having worked in uh, a Fortune 500 company and, and seeing some of these very real breakdowns in communication, in compassion, in accountability, and to see them all arise from conflict, but you know, for most people, not have the tools to actually overcome that conflict or move through that conflict in a way that that actually you know tethers people back together rather than feeling like they're disbanded and, and not connected from one another. This is really valuable work. So. I appreciate appreciate what you're doing, and um, really appreciate you coming on the on the onto the Man Talk show. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Connor. I, I appreciate the opportunity to give this message a voice because I, I believe that the misuse of conflict might be the biggest energy crisis facing our world, and uh, the the potential is unbelievable. And so I'm really happy to share this. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, thanks very much, Nate, for joining me on the show. Uh, for everybody that's out there listening, definitely head on over. You can check out Conflict Without Casualties, uh, Nate's book, A Field Guide for Leading with Compassionate Accountability. It's on Amazon. We'll have the link in the show notes so you can check it out there. Uh, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, leave us a comment, a review if you enjoyed the show. It goes a long way. And uh, and if you enjoyed this episode, share it with just one person. Just share it with one person that you that you might uh, that might enjoy this, that might need this. Whether it's whether it's your boss or a friend or somebody that you work with, uh, and just help spread that message out there. So thanks so much for tuning in. This is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. 